Well, good morning, everybody. Who's in the house? Jesus is in the house, right? So wherever two or three are gathered, Jesus says, I am there in the midst. And I thank you for being able to gather both here in the house and online. And we are going to pray. Lord, today, may you through your word and through your present Holy Spirit impart to us truth and impart to us wisdom and impart to us strength and impart to us power and impart to us peace. Lord, your word says we have not because we ask not, so we ask for those things. And Lord, whether gathered here on site or online, I pray through your Holy Spirit that you would stir up the gift within us to love and serve you. Lord, even this morning, if people are watching or a part of things that have not uh, journeyed with you in recent years, or maybe they're just trying to figure out um, how to navigate things in this culturally changing world, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to you and that they soon would come to a place of putting their faith in you, having their lives changed and transformed by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit coming to dwell within them. Lord, we love you. We worship you in spirit. And now, Lord, we worship you in truth. In your name we pray. Amen. Do any of you have a young adult that's connected to you in your life, maybe a family member, a friend, and you're worried about them? Maybe they've graduated from high school, maybe even from college, and you're hoping, you're just hoping upon hope that they're going to land on their two feet. But if you were to take a casual observance of their life right now, you would be worried. Are, are they going to stick with a job? Are they going to get that education done? Are they going to align their relationships rightly? Um, well, I don't know if I was necessarily one of those growing up, but I had people concerned about young Carrie in his young adult years. I was uh, very encouraged that God got a hold of my life early on. So it wasn't the question of, wow, he's really out there on the deep end. I hope we get him back and navigated that kind of thing. They were concerned that I was maybe too idealistic or I thought too much of being able to change a world or something like that. And they, every now and then, would make a comment to me. Now, I had tons of people that were giving encouragement to me, affirmation, that of boys, go this direction, proud of you, Carrie. But then there were some others that looked at me askewed. And I remember in particular, one person said something to me one day. I still carry it with me in my 50s here. But it was in my early 20s. And they looked at me and they said, Carrie, I'm concerned that you're so heavenly minded that you'll be no earthly good. Have you ever heard that statement before? So heavenly minded that you'll be no earthly good. Now, I understand. And like I mentioned, people can, you know, get up in, in their idealism and not be practical and that kind of thing. But it's bothered me all these years because I think it's the other way around. I think more often than not, we're so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good. And I see it amongst the young adult generation today and the adult generation today that we are so myopic, tunnel vision, on the here and now and our little world and, and how we can have success and how we can be happy that we're not tied into the grander scheme of the things of the heavens of eternity and how we can make that bigger and broader impact. In fact, you know, I wanted to come back and quote that Colossians 3 verse that, you know, it says, you know, since then Christ has been raised from the dead. Set your hearts on things above, not on things below. Set your minds on things above for Christ is risen. And I'm like, I, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Where's your heart? Where's your mind? Now, thankfully, God helped navigate me through life, and I do think that I have both feet planted on the ground. I'm making an impact. I'm being responsible in my networks, my families around me, and I also have a heart that's setting my mind on things above and not getting so myopic on the things below. Well, this series that we're in, Thinking Biblically, 
in a culturally divided world is for the purpose of us moving into that stream so that we can rightfully balance who we are as participants, as citizens on this planet, and the influence that we can have, yet at the same time we're connected dynamically to eternal things. And we need to think more biblically in the culturally divided world that we are a part of. And so I want to navigate another step further into the series uh, this morning. And I trust that you'll be able to, um, if I can say this, uh, put your thinking hat on. So I know that maybe you missed some Amazon Prime special deals and you might want to try to catch up on that here today or something uh, during service. Or maybe you're interested in a, a football game that's kicking off with the NFL right now. But you're going to have to hang with me because we're going to move on some things that are going to help put together, I believe, a significant piece for us in this series of thinking biblically in a culturally divided world. The first week... We talked about your worldview makes a world of difference. That what's at the core of how you see the world, the lens that you see it through, will end up determining your beliefs. Your beliefs end up determining your values, and your values end up defining and directing your behavior. And so the worldview makes a world of difference. That's stepping back, getting some of the big picture, putting that thinking hat on already this morning. Last week then, we looked at your trust. Your trust in authoritative truth is historical. Because if we're going to be uh, challenging everybody to think biblically in a culturally divided world, uh, then we got to answer the question, who cares? Who cares about thinking biblically? Because today, the authority of the Scripture is losing its moorings in our culture. And we mentioned last week that the simple phrase, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, doesn't cut it today. Now that's true. The Bible does tell us Jesus loves us. It is His divine inspired word. But just to say, hey, Believe it because it's there. My mother taught me that. My dad taught me that. Or the church I grew up in said, you just got to believe the Bible. And we defined last week that our authority from Scripture comes not from pages bound inside leather covers, but it comes from the events that it records. And the crucial event was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that historical event is the authority by which we can trust the Scriptures moving forward. And the Scriptures were canonized, of course, later on in, in uh, the uh, 300s, uh, uh, 3rd century there. And we need to not dismiss Scripture because we live in a culture that discredits it. Today, I want us to look at a third aspect, and this is putting your thinking hat on. You're sort of coming to a classroom a little bit today. And it has to do with the other side of thinking biblically in a culturally divided world. To really look at some of the cultural dynamic of what's happening in the world in which we live. Do you know what a sociologist is? A sociologist is somebody who studies society, who studies culture, who studies the movements, not only of the culture that you're in, but all those that are around the world. You can study culture and society. And it is a science. It's um, something that you observe, something you interact with. I believe for us, especially if you're a follower of Christ today, that you and I need to be students of society and culture as equally as students of the Word of God. In fact, I remember an advanced preaching class I once have, and, and uh, the book that we were assigned to read was one by John Stott entitled Preaching Between Two Worlds. It was the world of Scripture and the world in which we lived. 
And so if we're going to think biblically in a culturally divided world, then not only do we need to understand the Scriptures and what the Scriptures are teaching and how it influences our perspective, our worldview, our beliefs, our values, our behavior, right? But we have to be sociologists almost and understand the culture in which we live. You've heard me say it before, don't ask a fish what it thinks of water because water's all that it knows. And so if I was to ask you, what do you think about your culture? You go, well, the culture is what I sort of know. It's hard to step out of your culture that you're in to be able to look and define it other ways. I remember when I was a little, uh, a little kid and I got invited over to somebody's house for the first time and I ate with them. And I realized that other households operated differently than the household I grew up in. And when it came mealtime, the meal routine was a lot different and the spread was a lot different. The one I came from was much bigger. And I realized that uh, not everybody is growing up in the same kind of environment that I'm growing up in. Well, not everybody's growing up in the same culture that you're growing up in necessarily, especially as you look around the world. But chronologically, the culture that you and I are living in today is not the culture of your grandparents. It's not even the culture of your parents. And the kids that you're championing and those of you who are youth here today or watching online, your world is different than the world of your parents. Now we can uh, whimper and complain about it all or we can become uh, diagnosticians and look at it, observe it and say, what's going on here? What's going on? 25% of people who would take a survey today, if they were asked the question, what is your religion? 25% of them would check a box that says no religion or non-religious. And it's a term that's being used today to describe the fastest growing sector of our culture. They call them the nuns. I check the box. Religion? None. Religion? None. Millennials. And maybe you're a millennial this morning. Millennials are those who were generally born between 1980 and 2000. Uh, or really, you know, 1982 and uh, uh, 20, I think is 18 or whatever. So if you're between the ages of 22 and 38, you're in a uh, demographic called the Millennials. And the Millennials, they check the box, 35% of them. 35% of Millennials say none. No religion. Now why is that? Well, there's different reasons for it because of the culture that we're in and some of the whacks that are being taken and some of the movement things that we're going to be talking about today. And if you are a part of the nuns, uh, not the nuns with the capes and all that kind of things. The nuns, like a uh, religious nun. I, I, I'm not religious. No religion, right? Uh, the reason you check that box, why do you check that box? You don't want to check the box that says atheist. Don't believe in God. I mean, still, a vast majority of people believe in a God or maybe would identify as Christian in our culture. But, you know, that looks really bad to believe like there's no God. So they check the box, none. None. Faith is adrift for them because faith has not worked out for them. They've looked around and they have questions like, well, why do things seem so unfair? Why is there, um, bad, are, are bad things happening to good people? And so the bodyguard kind of uh, concern is really concerned. Where's God at in all this as a protector, right? And then like we looked at last week with the whole scriptural thing, they're the... Uh, just because the Bible says so, I don't know. I've been taught to be skeptic and to train certain this way. And so what we have to do is endear ourselves to the mindset, if we're not in it, of a nun. That person who has no religious context, and maybe you've come out of that and God's been showing you some ways, but yet you still flirt with a lot of doubts. That's understandable. Bring it on. Not with me, just bring it on with God because He is not uh, anti any questions or anti any doubts. But this is the world and the culture in which we live and it's different than the cultures that have been before us as we will see. But what I want to say to you this morning 
as I sort of stay with articulating these themes and these titles in this manner, is this point, that your culture is entrapped in the secular age. Your culture is entrapped in the secular age. And this entrapment, and I was trying to think of really the appropriate word to, to mention there because I don't want to overwhelm and scare us in it or think negatively of the culture itself, is that it's ensnared, it's caught up in a current that's carrying it along in a direction. And we need to be mindful of that current. Just like if you were to go to the ocean today, you know, there's sort of the, the rip currents and those kinds of things. Stay out of them because they're going to take you a certain direction. All right. So the culture is entrapped in a secular age and it's been building and brewing for several decades now, especially here in the, in the Western culture in America. Now, the idea of culture itself is not bad. If I ask you all to say, what's your favorite kind of food? Do you like Korean food? Do you like Mexican food? Do you like Chinese food? I could get a vote of spectrums across here. Those of you who like a good old Midwest steak and potato kind of food, right? That's me. And so there are different kinds of taste and flavors that we like. There are people that enjoy different kinds of music. Maybe you're a classical person. Oh my goodness, really? We got one of those still? Yeah, classical music. Or there's the countryside or the pop side or a hard rock kind of thing. We all have different flavors and tastes. Friends, it's part of God's beauty of the diversity of culture. And when I say the culture's entrapped in a secular age, it's really uplifting culture as a beautiful thing. It's not like saying, down on culture, boo, it's bad. No. What are you going to say to the water that you're swimming in? Bad? No. God placed you here, not only on this earth, but in Southern California, even with all of its necessary changes you'd like to see happen in Southern California, it's a beautiful place. I was gone some this week, and when I landed and I saw the palm trees at San Diego Airport, I went to myself and I went, I get to live where there's palm trees. I live in Southern California. That's different than the Midwest where I was. But you and I live in cultures and come from different cultures, backgrounds. Some of you may have come from other foreign kind of cultures or even other parts of the country. It's not bad. It's not boo on culture. Culture is part of God's beauty and His creation. And you should live it up and enjoy it and uh, look at the diversity and experience the diversity, get to know people from different cultures. You know what Scripture says about the end times, right? When we're all together, those of us that are followers of Christ, there'll pe be people from every language, tribe, and nation. The beauty of God's diversity around the world brought together. It's going to be a long worship block that day because of all the varied interests, all the different backgrounds. So culture is not bad, but culture itself can be caught up, and it is caught up in the secular age and moving it along in a stream that you and I need to be aware of. So if we're going to think biblically in a culturally divided world, we need to step back almost as sociologists and look at this and say, okay, let me figure this out. Let me see what's going on here. And not just complain, but to be objective about it, and know how to live within that kind of dynamic. That's why I've said in these two weeks that we must differentiate between a cultural preference and a biblical principle. Biblical principles never change, but cultural preferences often do. You may like something stylistically today in your life than you did 10, 20 years ago. All right? Maybe there's something out now that's different. Cultural preferences and diversity changes. But the biblical principles never do. So when we think biblically in a culturally divided world or diversified world, we have to distinguish between the two. Now, when you throw that statement out, we've thrown it out, then the question is, well, how do you do it, Carrie? How do you do it? Well, you need to be in the Word, and we'll work with that, that kind of thing. We've talked about that some. But I think equally so, you need to be a student of the culture and what's happening in the world in which we live. Have you ever seen this phrase? You are in the world, but not of the world. You are in the world, but not of the world. 
Does anybody in here know the exact text where that's stated exactly like that? That's good, because you just want to put yourself in a very difficult predicament. Uh, that is not a verse in the Bible. Now, that statement, you're in the world but not of the world, comes from some passages in Scripture. I'm going to be looking at a few of those. But you are in the world but not of the world. And I don't know if you can sort of get this picture, this analogy together. Any of you like, uh, like to uh, go out on the water on boats or maybe you have your own boat or maybe it's not some big, vast expanse of water, but you got uh, this uh, uh, you know, passion to, to be in a raft or maybe it's going down a river. Uh, what about just putting on a little uh, uh, floaty around you or an inner tube uh, of little... Uh, duck boat, I don't know, and you just go out into a big swimming pool or whatever. I want you to think in terms of a raft being placed in a body of water. You are in the raft, which is in the water, but you are not of the water. In fact, if you start to have a little leak and the water comes into the raft, you've got a problem. And maybe it's a slow leak in the raft or a boat that's a crack. And so you sort of bail the water out a little bit. But if the water all gets into the raft, you're sinking. You're going down. And so I think in terms of this sometimes as um, a follower of Christ, and I am in the world, but I'm not of the world. I'm enjoying the water. I navigate it. But I am of something else. I am in this uh, uh, raft, this dimensional state of existence. And I need to make sure that the water of the world, if you will, doesn't so encompass and come upon me that I sink and find myself in a problem. So you as a Christ follower this morning, if that's what you are, you need to be encouraged that indeed you are in the world, but you are not of the world, okay? And so this begins to help you diagnose uh, or look at or investigate culture itself. Now, I want us to define the term world, especially as it's used in Scripture. In Scripture, the word for world is the Greek word cosmos. Cosmos. The vast expense. Now you think usually cosmos is outer space or that kind of thing, but the cosmos is all the world. And there's three distinct ways that Scripture uses the, the term for world in Scripture. The first is it talks about the created world. The created world. Acts 17.24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord's of heaven and earth and does not live. It is the Lord of heaven and earth, and it does not live in temples built by human hands. Now this verse comes from the Apostle Paul when he's on Mars Hill, looking at the, uh, uh, the great majesticness of all the, uh, the temples there on Mars Hill uh, in Athens, Greece. And he is uh, trying to give a defense of the faith, an apologetic for the faith, he sees an altar to an unknown God, and so he stands up and he says to them, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord God. And so he goes from there and he begins to preach to them about Jesus Christ. So there's one sense in which the world, the cosmos, is used in Scripture. It talks about the created world. The second is it talks about those who inhabit the world, the inhabitants of the world. The familiar verse of John 3.16, For God so loved the world, the cosmos, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. And that's a great verse for all of us. Wherever you're at today, watching, tuning in, being a part of things, Jesus died for the world. God gave Him for every single inhabitant of the world. But then there's a third way that the word world is used in Scripture. And it references the cosmos itself as far as a, a world system of what's going on. 
And it's referencing that this world system is headed by Satan, and it's based upon self and greed and power. And so there's this system, this world, the, the dynamic of the particular culture in, that it's a system, it's a mindset, it's something that's pressuring against you and I, and we need to be mindful of it, and we also need to be mindful of it, and we won't dive into it all that deep today, but that there is an author behind this worldly system of thinking and operation, and it's Satan himself. Thus, with a verse such as John 15 that says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Now, who's saying that? Jesus is saying that. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So is Jesus talking there about the created world? It's like, God, Jesus, you created all things. Beautiful, even the cultures and the, the diversity. No, no, I'm not talking about that. Are, are you talking about the, the inhabitants of the world? Like, like you died for all? No, no. I'm talking about the systems and the pressures that are pressing you into a mold and causing you to move away from God and become a nun. No religion. Or indifferent at least. Or maybe just backslidden from it. That cultural force, that worldly force, is what he's referring to here. Ephesians 2.1 states this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the what? The ways of this world. And then right on the heels of that, Paul says, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. So he's like, hey, awakening church, check it out. Those of you that are now Christians, remember what it was like before you became a Christ follower? You were being carried along and swept away. You were taken up by the ways of the world. You couldn't even see it. By the adversary himself. You know, I've had the blessing the last couple of weeks. Just a little side note here. I, uh, last week, I heard a knock at the glass door very early out here because I come to church early. And uh, there was a guy by the name of Carlos. And Carlos said, I was driving by and God called me to stop and offer to power wash and clean everything along the front of this building, including the windows, because I'm a window washer. I'm like, really, Carlos? He says, oh, I... All I want you to do is pray for me. And he did. He had a big rig in the back, big old hot water power washer, and he cleaned it up this week. It's, it's cleaned out there. If any of you come in, sometimes like, oh, how's that? It's going to need to be seriously done. And he started working on the windows. And I came back in this morning, and he was actually cleaning some of the insides of the windows because he hadn't got that done and he could get in. Like, hey, Carlos, how is it, man? I prayed for him the week before for a need. We talked about it today. But then he began to unpack his story as a Christ follower. And what happened to him? And, and I almost wanted to say, hey, you want to stay for the 10 o'clock hour and come in and share your story about how you used to follow the ways of the world and the addictive behaviors you fell into and how you were operating according to some different sets of orders and then Jesus got a hold of your life. It was just a nice, beautiful sense of testimony there. But friends, all of us have that kind of testimony, whether it's grandiose or small, if we're a Christ follower, that we used to pass tense. But then we were brought into the boat, into the raft. And God set us on sail on a new course. But then what happens sometimes when you're set on a new course and you look at the things in the past or the way it is, water starts to seep into the boat. And so Scripture talks about this worldliness. Romans 12, 2 then says this to you and I, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be ye what? Transformed, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing and perfect will. 
So this is what happens. We enjoy the beauty of the culture around us and all the different preferences and distinctives and changes and worship God through culturally diversified means. But we have to be mindful that the cultures in which we live, there is a worldliness that comes to us from a, a, a cosmos, a, a worldly system that's being driven by the adversary behind it who's trying to take you down. In fact, the adversary is not just trying to rip a hole in your raft. He's just trying to flip you over sometimes. And sometimes we find ourselves there and we're swimming around and like, help, help. I need, you know, you are in the world, but you are not of the world. So true, but we need to be mindful of what's happening in this worldly system and how it's sucking us or pressuring us into a certain way. And then we have to work at renewing our mind continually every day. How's that going? Stop. Pause. What you been thinking? Is that thought life being something influenced by your friends and peers that haven't gotten saved in the raft? And is it subtly working its way back into how you think, what you believe, what you value, and the behaviors that you're participating in or not? You will never ever get out of this battle of needing to renew your mind until the day you see Jesus Christ. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. And we need to renew your mind. Now, if you've lost me a little bit, you're really going to lose me now if you don't come back and dial in really keen. I'm going to list for you three things that help describe what's happening in our current culture, in our current world, as it relates to this worldliness that's around us. Peter Berger was a famous sociologist. And uh, Peter Berger, he said this, the modern world is being shaped by three deep and fast-moving cultural currents. It's almost uh, like you're in the raft and these currents are coming from three different streams and they're making this smooth water tumultuous. And those three currents that are coming in and pressing on you and I are these big old words that he lists. And others have listed them as well. Secularization, privatization, and pluralization. And these things are pressing against you. They're currents that are coming and you and your friends and your family members. And we have to step back and evaluate, wow, it's, what's going on here? Well, these have been active for a fairly good period of time now in Western culture. And um, let me try to explain them to you, okay? You're really getting your education today. Secularization is the first. Each of these actually are processes, all right? They're not mentalities and mindsets. They're things that are going on, forces that are working themselves against you, trying to change you change our culture. Secularization comes from the word secular, all right, um, which means the present age. And so someone who is a secular person only thinks about the present age. In other words, the idea of eternity, of a heaven, of a future, those guys wouldn't come into play. To a secularist, here and now is all that's really important. And the term secular or secularism is an idea, all right? It's a, it's a mindset. But secularization is the process by which you become more secular, okay? And so I put this definition up there, combination of a few different things. Secularization is the process by which religious ideas, institutions, and interpretations have lost their social significance and no longer influence, inform or influence public discourse. I've been in ministry a while. I got some degrees behind me, all that kind of thing. Uh, I, I'm not a know-it-all person. There's so many things I don't know. There are some things I do know. And I've tried to work with uh, being in the world and not of it, given an influence the world of it. But you know, 
been a long time, if ever, that I was called up as a pastor, as a reverend, as someone now of the doctrine of ministry, and someone says, we would like you to sit on a panel of experts to discuss the problems in our world. Why? Because of secularization. The idea that a religious person in their thoughts could have any truth to apply to our modern contemporary issues is dismissed. So that someone who's a pastor or reverend is not highly esteemed. Now, it doesn't matter to me. My identity is in Christ, those kinds of things. I'm trying to figure out how God wants me to navigate. But secularization has taken away the concept of religious ideas, institutions, and interpretations out of the social um, significant platform. Uh, Richard Newhouse says we live in a naked public square. In other words, we're in the public square trying to talk about all these issues, all the issues you see on the news, and even more. But there is no one sitting there behind the table of experts or pontificating in the public square that there might be some spiritual issues behind the news issues. So you don't find on news a sit-down talk about where does racism come from and the evil that's behind it. In fact, you won't even use the word evil necessarily because that's trying to distinguish between good and evil. And then how do you distinguish between good and evil? Secularization is this process by which things that are seen of spiritual value are taken out of the mainstream of culture as seen as irrelevant or not applying. And so, you have to forgive me for saying this. That's why I get really bothered a lot of times when I see opinions and experts. They are all pontificating from uh, ignorance because they're myopic. They're not seeing a bigger picture. That doesn't mean what they're saying is ignorant and that kind of things. But there is a need to see the bigger and the fuller picture of things. Secularization is a process by which the church is being dismissed from contemporary culture and understandings, and we need to find our way moving back into it to be able to give encouragement. Now, not all's lost. I, I understand that Justin Bieber and uh, Chance the Rapper were on Saturday Night Live last night, and they actually sang a Christian song or a song called Holy. Now, if you know anything about Justin Bieber, God's been working in his life and seeking to be a follower of Christ and he's being discipled by good past, some good pastors, that kind of thing. Doesn't mean he's perfect or he's not going to fall or everything he says would be something. But it's like, okay, that's interesting. And they actually allowed that on Saturday Night Live? Well, that's good. That's good. Maybe not all hope's lost. But friends, that's uncommon. Who would ever think they could go on Saturday Night Live and sing a Christian song, Right? Why does that happen? Because of secularism, because of secularizations moved our culture in that kind of direction. So secularization is happening. It's around you. It's in the water in which you live and the stream that's around you. And you need to be mindful of it. The second is privatization. It's the process by which a chasm is created between the public and the private activity of life. And you are told faith is a private matter to be left out of the public arena. Then this is seen all over the place these days. Faith has been relegated to your particular taste or opinion. But the idea that your faith should be brought into the public square? No. You just sort of need to keep it to yourself. And that's all fine. It's why a politician can say that in their personal life, they do not believe in abortion. But in their public policy, they are very much pro-choice. And you think, how do you do that? Well, you do that because of privatization. It's saying you keep your personal private faith or thoughts to yourself, but don't bring them into public life. And so this process is squeezing us into a mold. It's a silencing kind of aspect. And we need to be mindful of how that is impacting our life, even as believers, to be a witness. Oh, well, I 
guess it's just sort of what I've come to believe and what I think. It works for me, and I do believe it's true, but um, um, yeah, I can't really stand up in this classroom and make a declaration that God is the creator of all things. I would be mocked. What's that pressure that causes you from saying that? It's the pressure of privatization. Privatization. The third is pluralization. Pluralization is the process of being confronted with a staggering number of ideologies and faith options, competing for attention with no view being dominant or seen as true. And uh, I think it's interesting, Peter Berger makes mention of it this way, it used to be in the olden days, there used to be a big canopy that spread over everybody and we all fit underneath that canopy. It was post. It was a Christendom. In other words, there was a Western belief that there is a God, even if that belief was a deistic belief, and that God wasn't a personal God. There was the canopy that there is a God, and there's the canopy that there is a truth. And philosophy would seek to discover what true truth was, but pro, uh, pluralization has brought in a plethora of ideologies, and all of them are, uh, they have parity. In other words, they have equal value, which means that they have no value. Because if all things have equal value related to truth, then there really is no truth that you're claiming. The exclusivity of truth is offensive. And so we have this proliferation of all the ideologies, and we're bombarded, and you will see young adults, Older adults, in school systems, people bounce from one to another. I'm just checking them all out, trying to figure them all out. Well, my first question would be, do you believe that one is true? Or no, it's just sort of whatever my new flavor and color is, whatever stripe I like, like to wear right now. And I'm just sort of getting a feel for it, you know, hanging out with it. Then I'll move on to something else and move on to something else. And it's like jello. It's just like all over the place. Friends, pluralization is not a canopy. It's brought about not the canopy. Actually, the canopy's been disintegrated, and now we have a million different little tents. And everybody's in their own little tent. And there is no overarching canopy anymore. So when you get frustrated, you scratch your head. How do they think that? How do they teach that? Or where do they come up with that idea at? You say, well... There's been changes in our culture, in the world that we're a part of. Secularization, privatization, pluralization. There are forces that are coming in and making it tumultuous in this pool of water that we're a part of. And it's no longer a nice, calm pool. It's a treacherous rapids that we're trying to navigate. You are in the world, but not of it. You need to be a student of the world to know what's happening so that you and I can address and give reference to things so that we can be on God's mission and help with what's needed. That's why it says this in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Again, culture is beautiful. It's part of God. But what we're talking about with this term representing world cosmos is the world system that has the engine of the adversary behind it who is seeking to bring people down, drown them if you will, with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Oh, I want that relationship. I would like to participate in that sexual activity. The lust of the flesh. I would like to have that monetary means. The lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. I wish I lived a different lifestyle than that person. Maybe if I just 
really nailed down this success path, I would get there. And the pride of life starts to slip itself in. It's like, hey, I'm there. I've arrived. Or I'm pretty close to arriving. All these things are not from the Father, but they are from the world. The world and its desires through the processes of secularization, privatization, pluralization, these currents are entrapping you as it's entrapped culture in a secular age. So if we're going to think biblically in a culturally divided world, we need to know what's happening. You know, thankfully this week, the uh, Supreme Court uh, hearings uh, for uh, Justice uh, Barrett uh, were fairly civil. I appreciated seeing that, especially from the last time that they went through them. But, you know, I thought in this process, you know, here you have a judge, and uh, I know she has a Christian uh, Catholic background, so I know she probably has really strong moorings as it relates to uh, distinguishing between a moral law, between what's right and law, wrong. Wrong, But at no time did I hear any question or read about any question being said uh, to Judge Barrett. Where do you get your basis for distinguishing between what's right and what's wrong? If she was asked that question at a high level, not just as it relates to the Constitution of the United States, you would say, well, I believe in right or wrong because I believe that there's a moral law. There's a moral law that spreads its way much broader than any constitutional law or other things. Thankfully, our Constitution always built upon that kind of law. But then the idea that that moral law has to come from someone, and that moral law comes from a moral lawgiver, God Himself. And I believe in God. I believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Did you hear that kind of discussion? And that Why? Because you live in a culture that's entrapped by the secular age. Those questions would be out of bounds. John 17 is a high priestly prayer of Jesus. Beautiful words. Here's Jesus praying not only for His disciples before He went to the cross, He's praying for you and I here today, seated here, those of you who are in line wherever you're at. Jesus is praying for you. And this is how He's praying. Father, I'm coming to You now, but I say these things while I am still in the world. I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they, You, us, may have the full measure of my joy within them. Thank you, Jesus. I need joy today. This is heavy stuff the pastor's throwing at us. Jesus is praying for your joy. But then he's mindful of the wrath that you're in in the world. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer, Jesus prays on that day, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So, this is where you get that phrase. What phrase? You are in the world, but you are not of it. Jesus recognized that He's God Himself. He came in the flesh. He had to deal with all the barbarians around them, including us. And it's like, whoa, this is a different world in the world it came from, the world that I created. But he's not praying that they be taken out of the world. All right? He's praying for them as they're in the world. But praying that they'll remember that they know they're not of the world and the world's systems and, and all the processes that are making it tumultuous. But that they have a citizenship in heaven. And that truly is a spiritual dimension of life. They don't live just in a naturalistic world, a supernatural world. And God is saying to you and I as believers, or even if we're a seeker today, open the eyes. Don't become myopic in a secular age and entrapped within it. See the beauty of all that God is doing. And then He says, as you stay there, I'm keeping you there, I'm not pulling you out. Not yet at least. I want you to do something, God. And he goes on and he says this, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, Jesus prays to His Father, I have sent them into the world. 
For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now, sanctified is sort of a big word too. What does it mean? Sanctified means set apart. It means to be holy. Come away. Come in a sense of not just running from culture. I mean, we had enough of those people that says, I'm out of here. I'm just going to bunker with God over here and be irrelevant to the world. No. Jesus says, I want to sanctify them. Sanctify them by truth. Sanctify them um, uh, through me so that they can and be in a safe, protected environment while they are in the world, but not of the world. And then he says, and what I like about this verse, and this is where I just want to close with this morning. He is saying, I have sent them into the world. We don't get out of the raft. We stay in the water amidst the currents. And we do everything we can possibly do to rescue other people who are drowning in this secular age. We have been sent into this world, even though we're not of this world, we are sanctified by the truth to think biblically and then have the Spirit of Christ Himself sanctify us wholly so that we are in this world representing an alternative for people who are desperately lost and looking, what's going to happen to this world? Oh my goodness, I can't believe the world my kids are going to have to live in when they grow up. Friends, we don't step back. We don't become indifferent. We don't become whiny, complaining people. We participate in rescuing people. That's why the statement, you are in the world, but not of the world, needs to have this added to it in one sense. You are in the world, but not of the world, so that the God who sent you may protect you and use you to bring others to Him. Amen? Then let's pray. Lord, this week, as we are in the world, but not of the world, I pray that across this room and across our online congregation that you would empower people with strength and perspective and love and compassion to reach those who are lost. And Lord, here this morning, if there's anybody who's lost that's in the water, that's drowning because of the pressures around them and the secularism that's going on, I pray, Lord, that they would do as that John 3.16 verse says. That you, O oh God, so loved the world that you sent your one and only Son that whoever would believe in you would not perish, but would have everlasting life. In the life to come, and an abundant life in the one at hand. So Lord, for that individual that needs to be saved this morning, may they just simply repent of their sins and their indifference, their double-mindedness, of their non-religious attitude. And may they move towards not the religion, but towards the relationship. Jesus, come into their life. Forgive them of their sins. Set them in a safe place in this world that they may serve your purposes too. And then for us, who are in the raft seeking to do the rescuing of others, may we sanctify ourselves by your word, your truth. If there's any holes or cracks in our boat or our raft, Lord, may we patch them with truth. Lord, may we sanctify ourselves with truth. May we sanctify ourselves by being in You. And Lord, may we get back at the task of reaching a world who desperately needs the hope and the joy that You bring. And God's people said, Amen. If you prayed that prayer to receive Christ today, I'd encourage you to just email pray at theawakening.church. I'd love to connect with you and encourage you how to have a relationship with the Lord in a more significant way as well as all of you here. Other than that, this was a refueling stop. You're headed back out that door. That's your mission field. Stay in the raft, but stay on the rescuing side. God bless.